Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Conversation, brought to you by the fine folks at Voice America who are doing a fantastic job of helping us. Uh, It's the last day in May where I am, but it still feels a little bit like April with cloudy skies and a a smattering of raindrops this morning. And we're hoping we get everything straightened out and on into the summer by the end of the day without any technology issues as well. We've got a great show planned for you here on what is the start of our transition into summer. My students are all wrapping up their final exams. They're taking their AP tests. A few of them are already out of class and have begun catching up on their sleep once again. Of course, at College Coach, we don't take a pause in the summer. This is a great time for students to make progress on their college apps and their college research. And we want to be able to help you through the process so that you're not behind when Labor Day arrives and the school year begins once again. Keep tuning in every Thursday at 4 Eastern from now through the end of the summer And we'll be here with new guests, fresh content, and lots of advice to share. On today's show, we've got a trio of college coach experts, all of whom are return guests. Our finance segment today is about refunds because, well, who doesn't love a good refund? And we'll spend our middle segment in discussion of the college essay. How do you get started? Where do you even begin? Uh, We'll help get things off on the right foot. But first, because it is summer and because we know this is a great time for families to travel and see college campuses, We wanted to talk about making the most of your summer visits. Joining me all the way from balmy Savannah, Georgia, is Tova Tolman. How's it going there, Tova? It is balmy. It's quite balmy. I was laughing at here. It feels like April. No, no, it feels like the dead middle of July here. I I was wondering, I was going to ask you, would it be okay to say balmy? I thought it was a fair bet that it would be be (laughs) the right adjective to use to describe your weather down there. At least you got. At least you've got a pool to to cool off in. All right. So, so summer visits. Um, kind of a a simple question to ask you, but um, should a family even bother to visit a college in the summer? Is it is it even worth doing? Absolutely. Uh, I I think you're making the assumption that it's not worth it because it's not in session. Probably there are fewer students around. But we can go through a whole long laundry list of reasons why it's still good and how to make the most of it. Well, hey, I'm not making any assumptions. I, I just um, maybe somebody else is. I'm really glad that you said that it is worth visiting in the summer because otherwise this segment would be over uh, and we would have a lot of time to fill. Um, but instead, we can talk a little bit about the summer visit. So the first thing I want to just begin with is what is different about a summer visit? Uh, what are things that a student should be aware of? Um, how is the life on campus changing? What are expectations and what should they be? Sure. I think that uh, you and I are just sitting here joking about the weather, but let's not forget about how weather does change a visit. Uh, it's going to be hot. It's going to be sticky probably. Bring water. I'm not even joking. I remember as a summer tour guide myself back in the day, many a time where uh, once a week, someone would feel safe and have to sit down as we're trekking through the, the campus across the, the heat and the, the cement and everything is is just sticky, as I was saying, like it already is here down in Georgia. 
But um, right. I, I joke, but the reality is, if you're visiting a school in Vermont in, in July, it's going to have a different feel than it is perhaps in, say, February. So I think it's important to, one, remember that just because I like the school when it's sunny and 70 degrees and blue skies, I might not like the school as much when it's sleeting, snowy, icy rain sideways uh, in the middle of that winter and I'll have to make the class across the other side of campus. Yeah, you know, that sometimes sounds trivial, I think, for families and students. Like, well, of course, I'm not going to base my like or dislike of a campus on the weather, but it really does change a lot about your impressions of a place. Um, in, in Portland, we have gorgeous, gorgeous summers, but it rains for most of the academic year. And that really changes what people are able to do outside, how they move around a campus. Um, so our summer tours were fantastic. We would give everybody popsicles as a, at a certain point on the tour. Um, you know, it was just like summer camp, but the fall and the spring is nothing like that. Um, and, and the weather is sort of where that begins, but there are other elements of, of differences, I think for summer visits versus academic year visits, what else would you it's say? It's to not expect? just about the weather. I think uh, another big part that changes is just the general vibe on campus when you have a full uh, student body present versus a perhaps skeleton presence of a few students taking summer classes or a few students working on campus over the summer. It's a much different feel when you don't have that full student body present. Yeah, so are there, I was thinking about this too, because this is something that I think is pretty notable. But, you know, I, I grew up um, near a big university. I went to a very small college. Um, are there differences in terms of degree of difference between, uh, you know, one school and another in terms of representing the summer experience for students? Or is it always going to be a dramatic difference between one, between summer and fall? Hmm. Ian, you asked the most interesting questions. I haven't thought about it that way before. You know, I think that's a really fair point. I think some schools are going to be dramatically different over the summer. And I think you're right. I do think your schools that probably have a, a very urban presence aren't going to feel all that different. You know, like I think of NYU or GW or Northeastern. I think some mm -hmm. of these schools are going to feel pretty darn similar. In addition to still being a thriving metropolis and you know, having that hustle and bustle on the streets, you also have robust summer programs where you have a ton of students on campus still taking classes, other students from around the country taking summer classes at that particular school because it's a fun destination. And I don't necessarily think you are going to get such a different vibe as you might for this small town where the entire town uh, commerce and, and just – general feel of, of that community is, is really based entirely around that school, where if 75% of the population of the school is gone for the summer, it, you're going to feel a notable difference. So I do think you're more of an urban campus is not going to feel it, you know, feel it as dramatically as perhaps your schools that are a bit further out there. Right. It, Reed was a place that there were probably 12 students on campus for two of the summer yeah. months. Four of them were interns in the admission office who did the tour guides and then you had some yep. students working on the Canyon crew, and they're basically working on grounds. And you might have a couple of summer research students, but that was it. And so there was no way to walk around and talk to students and, and get a feel for what their experience was, except for the four people that you ran into on the tour. Um, there is also, you know, some schools out there have summer sessions. 
if you look at Dartmouth, for example, um, they have a summer session and you're actually required to attend a, one summer session during your four years as a student there. So it's, it's helpful to, to know that some schools have these opportunities and that that might change the feel, the perspective of being on campus during that particular time. Um, mm -hmm. Tova, are there things that might be better about a summer visit versus a fall or a spring visit? Is there, aside from the weather, right, which we can assume in some places could be great, probably not for Arizona State, but um, for many places, the summer weather is going to be better. Are there reasons that a summer visit might be better for a particular kind of student um, or for a particular kind of campus? Absolutely. I think uh, I can think of two uh, pros, really, that work out to your advantage over the summer, you know, when, when classes aren't necessarily in session. One, if, if they're offering tours, they are making themselves accessible, and they're going to be a lot less distracted by all the other things going on. The focus is mm. going to be much more on you. You're going to have an easier time asking those that are available for questions. You're going to have an easier time asking them questions. And uh, you'll, you find a faculty member who is there. They're not going to be rushed in the middle of grading however many papers. Uh, they'll take that moment to chat with you and answer more questions. And administrators that are around don't feel the weight of a line of students standing out their door uh, waiting to talk with them, they're going to have a little bit more time to devote uh, conversation and, and energy and attention to you, even just as a prospective student. So I, I think that there's a lot to be said about the campus being less crowded, less going on, and you having a greater opportunity to ask some deeper questions. And if this is a school that you do end up then falling in love with, you can always go back and visit when classes are in session to get a feel for that vibe component that might be harder to assess in the summer. I think the other component here that can work to your advantage is that summer is often a time when families like to take a vacation, right? You like to go somewhere. You like to go see something. So why not make a destination a college? Make one less museum uh, uh, on, your, on your afternoon schedule for the town that you're in or the city that you're visiting and go see one extra school during that slot and make it part of your tourist destination as that can be a really fun thing to do and then gives you an excuse uh, to go see a, perhaps a different place or to take a trip as a family to a different location. Yeah, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that um that first point that you made around people just being more available and more willing to chat with you and, and just in general being accessible. I think that that's actually a really great point um, because, you know, our, our summer tour guides were, they were just focused on being tour guides. Like they, they didn't have homework. They would extend tours sometimes to an hour and a half. Um, they could stay afterward. They could take you over to lunch at the dining hall. Um, it, it was pretty awesome, I think, for, for visiting students to get the full attention of the admission office. And that can be really great for some students, especially if you have a lot of questions um, and you feel like you, you really want to talk things over. Um, so that's, that's a really awesome point. I, I'm also wondering, um, I want to come back to this point of returning in the fall, but for students of a younger age, um, are, are summer visits maybe better than fall and spring visits or maybe for students of a certain age who have a particular idea about what college is? I, I'm trying to imagine students where this could be a really good fit for them and their personalities. I think that some of those early visits, your, your goal is less to determine, is this the school that I want to go to, but more 
what about this school do I like? What about this school do I not like? You're, when you're a 10th grader or you're 11th grader, just starting out on some visits, I think your goal more is to develop a vocabulary of likes and dislikes. What does a big school feel like? What is it? What is an urban environment like for a school? Uh, what is advising like and why might I care for one style of it or a different style of it? What are general education requirements like and what might I be looking for? And those are definitely all the kinds of things you can still dive into quite deeply on a summer visit. Um, so I think for some of those larger goals that you're just trying to ascertain what do I like and what do I not like, I do think that that can still be accomplished over the summer. Um, and then I think you're absolutely right. And and it's it's just a great way to sort of dip a toe in and, and kind of get a feel for a place um, rather than having to feel this barrage of, oh, my God, look at all these college students. They're moving about frantically. They're so big and smart. I mean, you know, like a freshman in high school might be intimidated by that kind of experience, but can get a lot out of a summer visit. Mm-hmm. Um, that return concept, the idea of going back, do you think that it's important for a student, especially if they're considering a school as one of their top choices, to go back and see a school during an academic year? Or is a summer visit sufficient for being able to say, this is a place I really care about, a place I'd like to attend? Ah, that's tough. Is money no object? Are we flying across the country? <laughs> Give me some parameters I mean, here to make my answer. Well, we probably we probably should consider money. I mean, I think that you know, whenever we talk about college, it's important for us to be aware that the, there are the financial components. So, um, let's say that you know you can, let's say that you have the flexibility to go visit a school, um, or um, in the case that you don't, what would you want to remind a student about um, when they think about just that yeah. that summer visit? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I do think, um, I'm going to answer your questions out of order. Um, I think that the value of seeing the school when it is in session is kind of huge. You know, that's the, that's one of the main pieces you can't get from online research, uh, from conversations with others, um, is, you know, getting that real sense for yourself. But the the reality is that, you know, you, you do have that limitation of finances, of time, of all those other fixed commodities where you don't necessarily have the ability to just hop back on a plane and go see another school. Um, I do think if this is a top choice and you're really trying to decide at the end of the at the end of the process, maybe not in October, November of trying to decide do I want to apply to this school? Because I do think you're probably going to have enough information at that point to go on whether or not you want to apply. But Now it's April and you're in this wonderful position of having all of these offers of admission in your hands and you're trying to decide which school to attend. I really strongly encourage you to make your way back to that school, uh, to see that school when it's not absolutely, you know, lovely and glorious and sunny. Um, It could potentially be raining nonstop like it always does me in the backyard. Um, Or to see it when there are students walking around. What do those students look like and feel like and dress like and act like and, and do those things seem to fit? with what it is that I want. If you can't go back, I'd say talk with parent students. Ask the admission office to set you up, whether a phone date, a Skype date, a a FaceTime date with a current student um, who can talk a little bit about some of those things and you can ask them some questions that you can't learn online about why they chose the school, how do they spend their typical Saturday nights and Wednesday nights, what do students do for fun, what are the kinds of things going on that you can't really get at from the website. Uh, because you can't always go back, I think, is the reality. Uh, but, yeah. but if you can, I think it would be great, too, when school is in session. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just it's important to know what, what 
are what's the context in which I'm viewing this school? What are the the factors that are changing my impression of it? And you know, am I drawn more to schools in the summer months uh, for that reason? So you know, you're never going to be able to put schools on the same playing field when you go see visits. Everything's going to be different about those experiences. So you want to make sure that you you always understand the factors that are affecting how you feel about a college. Um, Tova, I think that's about all the time we have to visit with you today. Oh, that was terrible. That's funny. I uh, think there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a little jealous that you've had quite a few visitors down to Savannah this year, actually. Amy and Abigail came back, to, came by to see you. So I assume that we're just making our way through our team alphabetically. Um, it's true. And that, we have a while. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'll be there in a few weeks or months, perhaps, uh, to say hello. Good. Softman's always welcome. Fantastic. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. Um, folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about starting the personal statement of the Common App. So uh, don't be scared. Come on back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, we've come to the point in today's episode where I get a chance to shed a little spotlight on a school you might not know much about. And I've chosen Middlebury College, where actually one of my seniors from last year uh, is enrolling this fall. So here we go, Middlebury. Given its diverse array of language offerings, there are about 12 programs to choose from, an incredibly active Rohayton Center for Global Affairs. There were approximately 75 guest speakers and events held last year alone, and a very international student body where 10% of students hail from overseas. It's no wonder that Middlebury College students are eager to engage the world. On its 300-plus acre campus in central Vermont, Middlebury provides over 2,500 undergraduates, plenty of hands-on and personalized attention. All freshman students take a writing-intensive seminar during the fall semester, which is taught by a professor who also serves as their first-year advisor. Love and Death in Western Europe, Art and the Environment, and Plagues, Past and Present, are just some of this year's unique offerings. Athletics are popular at Middlebury, and nearly 30% of the student body participates in varsity sports. The college sponsors 31 teams, including men's and women's ice hockey, football, and men's and women's squash. Fun fact, Middlebury's Quidditch team, the first collegiate club team in the country, was founded in 2005 and is still going strong. I'm not sure how I feel about Quidditch, at least as played by muggles, but if you are into running around with broomsticks, it sounds like Middlebury is one of those places to be. Now, one of the reasons that I've chosen Middlebury for today's spotlight is because it's one of the rare, highly selective schools that does not actually require any kind of supplemental essay, which means that the only piece of your writing that they would see at Middlebury would be the common application personal statement. And it just so happens that today is the day we'll start talking about the personal statement with expert counselor and advisor, Kara Courtois. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Thanks so much, Ian. So, Kara, I wanted to start just by asking you, among your roster of, of juniors right now, I guess we could call them rising seniors at this point, how many, how many students do, are you working with um, today in a ballpark? Uh, Ten Fourteen or so, okay. Um, who is the furthest along on the personal statement right now? Or where, are, where is the student that is sort of furthest along on the personal statement? I'd say the furthest is probably on the third draft of nice. a topic that I think she'll stick with. I have other students that sent me drafts, but they kind of need to change topics. <laughs> so. Okay, so, so there are regularly students are going to be sort of changing between potential topics, giving something a shot and then coming back. Okay. That's a good thing. I think for students to hear, <laughs> first of all, mm -hmm. that, that it's okay not to nail it on the first time. What sort of steps do you take? You know, you're working with a student and it's time to start thinking about the personal statement. Um, what, what's, where do you begin? What, what is the subject of the conversation? What sort of assignments do you, do you give just to get the ball rolling here? Uh, great question. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's primarily around brainstorming, you know, before they sit down to write anything. I always suggest that it's, it's better to go in with a large variety of ideas and topics to potentially choose from so that if you go down the road of writing a first draft of a topic that you really were wedded to and thought would work really well, and we decide it's probably not going to have much of an impact, you know, a positive impact on your application, and you should try something else, that you have something already there, and you're not just feeling very stuck. So I really do a lot of um, preliminary brainstorming and encourage students 
to, you know, do a variety of things. Um, the first, the simplest, you know, kind of go around that I start with is often just encouraging them to look at if, if they're applying potentially to mostly common application schools, then I have them look at the common application essay topics, which are already available, and then try to brainstorm two ideas for each topic. But I always give them the out saying that I doubt that they're going to have an idea for every single topic, so they're allowed to cross off two of the questions. And so that, you know, maybe at the end of that brainstorming, they'll have somewhere between six to ten ideas. Um, wow. So that's a preliminary uh, run through. A lot of times that doesn't necessarily yield uh, the best ideas, I think. Um, but that's where I start because it does yield some ideas for students. And sometimes then they can get running, you know, on a first topic almost right away. And they don't have yeah. to kind of drag things out. Um, but if I see a student's really stuck or um, just kind of giving very basic feedback that doesn't give any real depth to who they are in particular in comparison, say, to other students who might play tennis, if that's the topic they want to write about. It's really hard to kind of personalize that sometimes. So then I approach from a different angle of having them either text three of their friends, uh, friends, family members, and ask them, you know, to list three, you know, adjectives to describe them or uh, to remind them of the three things that they uh, think of when they think of that uh, student in particular, things that stand out to them, experiences maybe. Um, And then I also have a a set of kind of brainstorming questions that I'll email to the student that are a little bit based on what the common application is about, but just really trying to get at things that aren't so obvious. You yeah. know, really, we often talk about it, the, the list of 10 things. What are your top 10 experiences, people you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so the, the sport thing is really interesting. I was actually talking to a friend who does some essay reading, um, and she was saying, if I have to read another essay about sports, <laughs> um, <laughs> she's like, it's just, it, I just, so many times people write about sports. And she said, she said I don't like sports but I really like Friday Night Lights. And I like Friday Night Lights Mm. because it is a character-rich show Mm. about people and their relationships and how they're growing in this town. And you can write an essay about sports, but it shouldn't be about sport. It should be about you and who the character is Mm -hmm. that's underneath it. Um, And she she writes that on a a lot of essays that she reviews because she says, you know, I I really want to learn about the person underneath this. And I was talking mm-hmm. to a student just yesterday as we were doing this brainstorming, and she said, well, what's the topic? And I said, well, every essay is sort of about two things. You've got your topic that is your sort of shorthand of, you know, I'm writing an essay about tennis, or I'm writing an essay about my trip to Europe, um, which is the, you know, sort of the what. But then what, what your essay is really about are the characteristics of you that that story illustrates or demonstrates. So it's kind of the the telling is the high level, and then the showing is this deeper, more engaged level. And I think that I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, sometimes it can be hard to actually know whether we're going to get to that second level with a topic that really se- sounds like it's going to be good. Um, that mm-hmm. sounds like it's got legs to be a great essay. Um, mm-hmm. What is there a way to sort of know that a topic might work? Or do you just have to sit down and, and do it and see where it takes you? 
I think it's both. I mean, I think sometimes you just feel it in your gut. Um, partly it might be the joy the student has when they describe a particular topic. Because yeah. usually in a brainstorming, I'll have them jot down some ideas. But then I want to talk through, you know, what, what made you, you know, say that or respond that way to that question. Tell me more. Tell me that story. And, you know, usually when they verbalize it, it's, it flows pretty freely when it yeah. seems like something that they're excited about. So I have a great example of a student who's now at Yale who brought in the typical spring assignment for his junior English class of the college essay um, yeah. in our first meeting. And it was that basic tennis essay. <laughs> so, and I was like, uh, you know, actually this is going to hurt you at almost every school. I didn't say it that quickly, but just really, right. it's just not right. going to help you. Really, this doesn't move the needle at all, especially at the highly selective schools, um, or maybe earn you kind of merit money sometimes. Um, and he deserved right. a lot of merit money. So, um, you know, lo and behold, usually after about two brainstorming sessions, um, the one that brought joy immediately was when he talked about trains. And that came through kind of, you know, random conversation. And you just knew it. That's what you're writing about. It took convincing <laughs> to convince <laughs> him that a college yeah. wouldn't laugh him out of the room. You know, if he was writing about his childhood fascination that grew into this really robust kind of engineering-focused love of trains. Um, but once he started writing, it actually ended up being his valedictory speech as well. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So he actually didn't have to mm -hmm. write a, a speech separately because he had he already it. written it. Jill, two birds <laughs> with one stone. Um, yep. You touched on a couple of, uh, I think, interesting things there that I want to circle back on. The, the first, um, how do you coach students through the sort of the reality that their first or their second or third draft, maybe tries at this thing are not going to be helpful or good. Um, you know, the students really struggle with this assignment uh, because it's so unusual um, and so different from what they're used to. What are some things that you say that help keep students from getting discouraged when they might be used to, you know, cranking out an essay for English in one or two drafts max? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they don't get frustrated <laughs> with what I'm saying, but I always fall back yeah. on the tried and true kind of turning the mirror on them and ask them to read it aloud. Mm. Um, you know, whether, whether we're on a phone or they're on their own or they're reading it to a family member, whatever it may be. And if they're bored, then clearly someone else will be bored, <laughs> you know, reading right. it. And so... Right. I really, I just, I don't even need to say anything, you know, most of the time, to be honest. It's just, you know, listen to yourself when you read it. Is there no inflection, you know, in your voice? Um, is there no enthusiasm? Uh, you know, what did you learn about this person? Um, so that's really uh, important. Um, certainly just uh, reading examples of, um, you know, pieces of writing that uh, really does more of that show versus tell. Um, I know, yeah. you know, some of our colleagues use books that will, you know, bring that to life. Um, I have a variety, you know, that sometimes I will use or just little excerpts, not from the books that are published about college essays, but, you know, recently there's a New York Times article that came out, um, highlighting some college essays. And then, so I pluck a couple of those, uh, paragraphs 
a lot of the colleges, Johns Hopkins, Middlebury, um, I think Wesleyan yeah. does it as well, Vassar, give you some examples of what they consider good essays. Um, but I only look at excerpts with students uh, rather than the whole thing because I really mm. don't want them to put the pressure on themselves to be somebody else um, yeah. and to, you know, try to write like somebody else's voice. You know, overall, yeah. it's just trying to tap in. Um, and then the final thing that I, I do with quite a few students is that, um, you know, once we're in on a topic is, uh, you know, if it, maybe it's their second topic, is maybe they should speak their thoughts into a microphone on their phone and record their story before they actually sit down to write. Because I do feel like it's more the writing, the action of the writing and trying to have proper grammar and sentences and all of that that locks students up more than when they're just telling their story and encourage them to tell it to a friend if that's easier, if they feel like it's kooky, you know, to <laughs> sit in the room and talk to their phone. But yeah. I just find that that really helps unlock some students. Yeah, I, I often push back on students when they start describing something I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, well, let's, we got to know. We got we to gotta talk through this because you have to be able to sort of share with me what you think you might write about. It's not just going to effortlessly show up on your screen when you sit down to type it. You have to be able to talk about this as well. And, and that, you know, it sort of brings me to the, the other question I wanted to ask you, which is that, you know, a lot of students are really lucky to have someone like you um, working with them on this brainstorming process, someone who asks good questions, who sort of knows some of those traps that you might fall into in terms of commonly used topics or mistakes that students often make. What should a student do, um, you know, in terms of involving other people? Who are good um, resources to have if you don't have a college counselor that you work with really slowly that can help you to identify that topic and, and make it work for you? Um, I mean, if it's during the school year, I definitely think, you know, a lot of teachers, not just the English teacher, but a lot of teachers would be more than happy. Um, so whomever a student is closest with, you know, in the academic setting might be just a great resource because, again, they might also say to them, wait, it's so obvious. You should be writing about this. Remember that yeah. time, you know, you yeah, were yeah. doing the dissection of the frog and, you know, whatever it may be. And it might be um, helpful in that context, but they also have that trust. Um, and then, you know, certainly uh, identifying family, friends who you won't probably struggle with. So sometimes an immediate parent may not be <laughs> the best resource for some students, you know, um, right. but an older sibling or an aunt or an uncle, um, you know, some sort of mentor role could be, you know, really helpful for that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's fantastic. And find somebody who's good at asking questions, who, you know, mm -hmm. probes a little bit, who, you know, makes you follow up on things, can challenge you. Um, I think you want to get outside of whatever your conventional thinking is about this. But, you know, whenever I do this with students, I, I almost try and trick them uh, into not knowing that we're necessarily thinking about the personal statement, but eventually totally. getting to that yeah. topic. Um, like I had a student I worked with yesterday on brainstorming and, and we got about 45 minutes in and and I was like, so what do you think about this for a topic? She's like, we've been talking about an essay this whole time. It's like, yeah, 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 I think this sounds great. And she's like, oh, oh, I see what you were doing and starting to connect the dots. <laughs> um, and it worked really well because she wasn't thinking, okay, what's my first paragraph? Yeah. What's my second paragraph? Yeah. It was really an opportunity to, to think more conceptually about the topic. Um, mm -hmm. 
Great. Well, Kara, I, I hope that uh, we get more chances to talk about this um, on the line. There, there are so many great tools and tips that you have, and, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the show to talk a little bit more about essays in the future. My pleasure. I'd love to put in a plug for our blog, though, because there's a lot oh, yeah. of great brainstorming techniques that are free to the public. So um, you're getting onto the College Coach blog is probably one of the best ways to also help a student you know, to move ahead. That's right. Blog.getintocollege.com. Pretty easy to remember. Uh, a lot of great tips up there. And we will be ramping up our summer essay content um, as we move into the summer. Thanks a lot, Kara, for that reminder. It's fantastic. Uh, folks, when we come back, it's going to be financial aid time. Do you like refunds? Yeah, me too. Come on back after the break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever given any thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option, Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Hi, welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, I recently bought a washing machine uh, downstairs, got my laundry set up all fixed up, and it wasn't working very well. And I started to have to gear up for this idea of calling in for a refund. And it's not a pleasant conversation to have. When we most of us purchase something, a typical question is asked, you know, what if I don't like it? Can I get a refund? Is this something that's even possible? A washing machine seems like a big purchase. A college education <laughs> seems like an even bigger one. So when parents drop their kids off in the fall to start their new college journey, parents often do wonder, what if my child doesn't like this college? Are there any returns? Can we get a refund? So joining me to help talk through this challenge, and this is a really interesting subject, uh, is Michelle uh, Richardson coming to us from Iowa. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. So I want to see what kind of uh, mental kung fu we can do to get college refunds. I'm, I'm really interested to learn here. So how do most colleges answer this question? Can parents and students receive a refund if a student drops out or needs to leave college for a medical reason or, or any kind of personal reason? Uh, great questions. Um, you know, life happens for all of us and even, you know, for college students. And, you know, there is good news that, yes, most post-secondary institutions will offer a refund for tuition and other directly billed costs, such as room and board. Um, and typically, each college will have their own tuition refund policy that, it is really imperative for the students and, and parents to be aware of and ensure that if the student does need to withdraw at a certain point in time, um, know that they complete the necessary steps and paperwork uh, for the institutional leave of absence or withdrawal process. So if they are able to get a, a refund or a partial refund, they've done their due diligence. So it, this is possible. Um, that, that's, uh, my first segment with Tova, I said, should you visit colleges in the summer? And she said, yes. And, and you're saying that, yes, it is possible to get a refund. Now, how do colleges yes. calculate how much a student may be refunded? It seems like there are a lot of sort of ins and outs and variables associated with that process. Very true. And, you know, there's never a one fits all um, as we're, you know, find often in admissions and financial aid. Um, so sometimes a refund of tuition and certain fees and room and board is typically prorated and is based on the exact effective date of the leave of absence or the date of withdrawal for the student from the college. However, parents and students should know that most colleges will front load and offer a reduced refund amount in the first few weeks of the semester. So, for example, one college's policy that I did recently look at offered a 90% refund of the tuition if the student withdraws in week one. Um, but they'll only get a 50% refund of tuition if the student left the college in week four of the semester. So, and there was no refund if the student withdraws in weeks 9 through 15 of that respective semester. So, it really is uh, important to know the exact date and to communicate that to the college because that's how they will calculate 
and prorate the the refund. Um, And another consideration that families need to think about is some colleges will use a different refund calculation for tuition and fees and maybe room and board. Um, For another college that I recently researched, if a student withdrew before the first day of class, um, tuition and the room and board would have been refunded um, 100%. However, if the student withdraws by the 10th day of the semester at that same school, tuition would be refunded at 80%, but there would be no refund for room and board. And so um, in some colleges, it may be written in their policies that there are certain fees that they may not uh, refund, such as you know, student body fees or a computer fee or health insurance coverage if that was part of the directly billed cost at the, the beginning of the semester. So it, uh, that's why we really recommend having the students and the parents review the tuition refund policy if they think their student needs to withdraw for any reason. Yeah, it's, and it sounds like it's a good idea to know what this fine print is. It, you know, that the example that you gave of 90% refund in that first week, you know, it's it's hard for a student to decide in one week, this isn't for me, but you might want them to know that, right. hey, by, by this fourth week, we still do get 50% back, and this is, a, this is a lot of money. So if you can sort of be thoughtful about it, given that you're sort of heading a particular direction, that's really helpful for a family to know. Um, now, you had mentioned the idea of tuition insurance um, and, and parents being able to purchase tuition insurance. Now, th- that was in an email that you sent to me, but is it, is it that tuition insurance come from the school or is it something that comes outside the school? And, and is that a good idea to add to supplement these refund policies? That's a great question. And, and the key word there was in your statement about supplement. So there are a couple of tuition insurance entities. Um, a lot of these are partnering with colleges. And so under the college tuition refund policy, it will talk about um, if they've partnered with a tuition insurance entity for this case. Um, so tuition insurance basically provides extra financial protection if the student does have to withdraw from school for a specific covered reason. And most often with this type of insurance, the student needs to withdraw for a a physical medical, uh, such as injury or illness. Um, But there are some policies that are are a little broader um, for other coverage, Um, you know, Some families want to make sure that they're going to get all of their money back um, or as much as possible, so they might feel that this supplemental insurance might be um, a good investment. Um, It really depends on on the family. You know, oftentimes, and I, I did not purchase this when my own children were in college a few years ago, um, you know, if your child is healthy and, you know, most students today are, are young, the probability of them having a, a medical issue where they need to withdraw from school is, is pretty minimal. So it, it depends, um, you know, if the student does and has had medical issues in the past, it, it might be a, a good consideration for families. 
Um, it just really depends on what their risk tolerance is and the school's uh, policy themselves on whether or not families need to purchase this additional insurance. So financial aid, I think, is an important consideration here, too, uh, because, you know, sometimes you're paying uh, out of pocket. Um, many families, though, are receiving some sort of financial aid or scholarships, federal student aid. Uh, what's the refund po- process look like in those cases? How does the aid get refunded and how is it accounted for in a refund policy? Um, that's a great question. And, and, you know, the term refund is defined in a different manner in this type of scenario when the student is utilizing federal financial aid. Um, a refund for a student who receives a federal Pell Grant or maybe a direct loan or a, a Parent PLUS loan And then if that student withdraws or leaves the college without completing a class or the classes, um, a refund in this scenario is defined as monies that the school will have to pay back to the federal government. Um, They might have to pay back all of it. They might have to pay back a a portion of it um, because the student did not utilize or earn that all of that financial aid um, during that semester. So that is a completely different scenario when we talk about refunds. So um, financial aid recipients will, like I say, they'll earn their financial aid as the semester progresses. And so when federal student aid uh, recipients and students who receive that type of aid, um, a pro Rata schedule is used to determine how much federal student aid the college will have to send back to the federal government. And in some cases, because the students received a a refund from the college for maybe outside living expenses or other uh, personal expenses, indirect costs for attending that college, they may not have earned all of that money that was uh, provided to the students, so the students sometimes will have to write a check before they can leave campus to help pay back those financial aid funds. And, you know, I think it's imperative that families know it's not the financial aid office that has created this, and, and you know, they're not trying to make maybe a, a, a situation uh, be worse for a student. I know when I worked on the college campus, I had this happen. And, you know, uh, but federal student aid is regulated by the government and every college uh, financial aid office has to, you know, abide by these rules and make sure that they're doing their due diligence and that students are not um, are not uh, using funds that they're not entitled to because they're no longer enrolled in the college. Gotcha. I think that's that's really helpful. Now, um, what about, uh, we have about three minutes left, so a little bit more time to talk about um, off-campus living um, and uh, applying for financial aid and receiving a, a refund of money owed to the college for, for tuition and fees. What Can you tell me a little bit about this type of refund for, for off-campus housing and how it might differ from what we've discussed today? Sure. Uh, the term refund is, is utilized here in a completely different uh, manner. 
um, in, you know, the term refund, as you can see, has been used in several different capacities. Um, yeah. A refund in this scenario is where a credit balance on the student's account at the college can occur when their financial aid exceeds the directly billed cost. So uh. directly billed costs like tuition and fees um, and sometimes room and board, but if the students are living off campus, they're able to access financial aid to help pay for those off-campus expenses. And so once the directly billed costs are, are paid for, there might be excess uh, funds, and those are basically refunded back to the, the student. I would say a better term in this scenario would be the excess funds are, are returned to the student because uh, oftentimes students are utilizing student loans for these off-campus um, expenses, and uh, students, you know, and parents might think of these as, as refunds, but really it's, it's a, really a return of the student's credit balance. And, you know, in this scenario, the one thing I can't stress enough to students is if you are receiving excess funds, um, you want to make sure that you budget. Um, and you need to budget before the semester starts, and you need to budget before the semester ends. And what I mean by that is oftentimes students might arrive to campus in August, um, but they're not going to get their financial aid in until September. So the mm. excess funds will not be paid to them until September, but they might have already had to make a deposit and pay for August and September's rent before they get their excess funds back from the college. So students need to plan ahead for that scenario. And also, you know, when they get a nice chunk of change in September, perhaps, they need to make sure that they budget because that's what they need to utilize to live for, you know, the next month until January when that's typically the next financial aid uh, disbursement and the second uh, excess funds would be provided to students. So they need to make gotcha. sure um, they, they budget so they can adequately cover their expenses. So budget, read the fine print, plan ahead. A lot of similar sort of tips, but in the context of refunds today. And, and we really appreciate you coming on the show, Michelle, to talk through it. Absolutely. All right, folks, we hope that you don't feel like you need a refund on today's show, but we are glad to guarantee your money back if you're at all unsatisfied with today's content. That's enough silly jokes for me today. Uh, next week, we'll be welcoming one of our test prep partners to talk about summer test prep strategy. Um, we will also be talking about setting goals for younger students, especially in these wide open southern months, su summer months, and we'll introduce you to options for student loan forbearance. Uh, until next week, have a wonderful start to your summer wherever you may be. And we'll see you real soon on Getting It. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.